Hello and welcome to On Point. This episode features an interview with David Hunt, founder and CEO at Crossrope, a fun new way to get fit anywhere with a weighted jump rope experience. David is a 2004 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and Massachusetts Institute of Technology Entrepreneurial Master's graduate. He is a former naval aviator, startup founder, and jump rope enthusiast. With just a library card and an entrepreneurial itch, David was able to overcome a severe injury to focus his energy into creating a company that provides fun, accessible, and impactful workouts with revolutionary jump rope technology. In this episode of On Point, David talks about his life as an aviation pilot in the U.S. Navy, overcoming serious, life-changing injuries through passionate entrepreneurship, and the importance of taking calculated risks while also embracing uncertainty. Now, please enjoy this interview between David Hunt and your host, Tim Shaw. Welcome to On Point, founded by Eddie Kang, West Point, class of 2008. I'm Tim Shaw, West Point, class of 2004. And today we're joined by David Hunt, 2004 grad of the United States Naval Academy. Dave, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Tim? I'm doing fantastic. You are the first non-West Point grad we are interviewing for this podcast. So this should be really fun. So due to that, I'm going to try to avoid making any jokes at the expense of the Naval Academy. And if you could do the same about West Point, that would be awesome. One team, one fight, right? Yes, absolutely. Let's get into our first segment, AAR, or for our non-military listeners, After Action Review. In this segment, we'd like to touch on specifically what other veterans can learn from you, your process, and your journey. First and foremost, could you please talk about your decision to attend the Naval Academy? Yes, absolutely. So it was 1999, and I was very interested in two things, track and field and going to a college that had strong engineering programs. I was interested in girls too, but two things relevant to this conversation. So in doing so, I had had a couple people at my school that I had heard talk about the surface academies. And I grew up in upstate New York. And I think that in evaluating the service academies as an option, certainly there was an allure to joining the military, seeing the world, serving your country. I think the prestige that comes with what you hear about the service academies and the opportunity for the caliber of individuals that you get to work with. And so when it came to decide where I might prioritize going, I had done a summer seminar trip down to the Naval Academy, met a bunch of interesting people, did a recruiting trip for track and field. It was a little warmer down there than it was in upstate New York. So the confluence of those factors were what ultimately influenced me to take a shot and to try something that I didn't necessarily know years earlier would have been something that I was interested in. And I want to say in an email exchange we had earlier this week, you actually know one of our previous guests, Rodney Manzo. How do you two know each other? It was in early 2000 at the New York State High School Track and Field Championships, and we were both there competing in high jump. I think we were seated very similarly. I want to say that they sequenced the high jumpers by order of the highest height that they had achieved that year. 
And if I recall correctly, I had jumped 6'6", and Rodney had jumped 6'8". So he was already the favorite. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I had a stress fracture in my spine that had not been diagnosed. So I had this shooting pain, didn't have a great meet, but I specifically remember how awesome Rodney was. I mean, he was a great sportsman, a great competitor. We had a little bit of rapport, and we, that's where we found out that he was going to Army uh, and I was going to Navy, and we uh, proceeded to compete against each other in eight track meets, indoor and outdoor track and field, from uh, 2001 through 2004. So when I had seen that he was a previous guest, I reached out to him, sent him a, a LinkedIn invite, and just really cool how these early meetings and these early competitions can manifest in new opportunities to reconnect down the line. Amazing. What a journey for both of you. High jumpers, track and field athletes, veterans, and now both entrepreneurs. Can you talk about your experience at the Naval Academy? Were you a good student, a bad student? I would say both. I went to a preparatory high school in upstate New York, McQuaid Jesuit. I had a great experience there. And I feel it prepared me very, very well academically, whereas others had struggled. So my first year there, when the focus was academics, the focus was getting through the year, I did very well academically. But as soon as I hit my sophomore year, it was movies and video games and hanging out, trying to you know get off for the occasional party and focusing on track and field. And I majored in systems engineering. And though I still to this day appreciate engineering and technical type topics, the level of expectation in that track and that program and the level of effort I was willing to put into it were at two different levels. And so I did fine. I would say upon graduation, probably I was maybe barely in the top half of my class, if I recall correctly, but good experience. Even though you're a Naval Academy alum, I find the West Pointers, their background and experience quite similar and dissimilar. So Brad Genser, who's a co-founder of Farther, went to Catholic preparatory schools and said that that was an excellent preparation, whether it was discipline or academics. And it seems like that was the case for you. Many other guests had somewhat of a reverse path. They said they started off as not so good students, but then turned out like much stronger and kicked into high gear the ne- like the last three years. You seem to have taken the opposite approach. Yeah, it is. I think it's just one of those, you end up finding that the things that you have an opportunity to excel the most in are the ones that you get excited and inspired by. And what's interesting is during my time there, and this is no knock on the academics or anything of that nature. During my time, I, I was not impassioned by the things that I was learning, especially given that I wasn't coming out with plans to be an engineer. It was more of this idea of like, here's this great major. I should do this. I feel like I'm good at math and science. And what I found is that I was really passionate about sports and track and field and jumping. I was actually had my very first entrepreneurial idea, you know, plebe year. And my youngster year there ended up, you know, bringing it to one of those invention submission companies to see if it was a viable product. And I ended up not moving forward with it. But I share that experience because I've always been an advocate of super hard work and tenacity and perseverance, qualified with the asterisk of if I'm really interested and inspired by doing it. And so certainly no regrets. I did fine academically, and I think it set me up for service selecting pilot afterwards and having a good career and experience. But I think I had those signs early on that there were other things that were more inspiring and energizing for me beyond the academia. 
I'll try to make this the last time I reference previous guests. But what you said reminds me of actually McChrystal saying the best cadets are not necessarily the best officers. And there's just like different measurements of like evaluation. And I'd go so far as to now say extended to where you are today is that how you're measured as a cadet is very different than, or midshipman is very much different than how you're measured as a junior officer. And then in the civilian world, it's a completely different measurement. And so there's so many different ways you're being graded across those three transitions. As a midshipman, and then as a junior officer, and then as a civilian entrepreneur, how do you think you have adapted your career across all three? Not only does it make sense, I think it's a great reflective question that everyone should ask. I mean, even even if they didn't go to a service academy where you think back through the formative phases of your life and how the decisions and experiences that you had ended up priming you to ideally be successful in the next one. So I think for me, the midshipman experience, if I can reflect back and place myself in that scenario, was about expanding my worldview and coming up with my own personal thesis values and philosophies around why I did things the way I did them and how to prioritize what I did. So in essence, I think the objective when I was there was to do well enough academically and to do well enough in preparation to ideally be able to select the career path that I wanted while still making sure that I was carving out time for the things that really energized and inspired me, whether it was something as my track and field career, whether it was something uh, as silly as getting into poker and blackjack. Uh, You know, I, I would take on these various hobbies and these things that really resonated with me. And then I would carve out a very intentional and focused period of time to actualize what I felt was my ultimate potential and that thing that was my focus. So, you know, as a midshipman, that was the first thing is I can become good at things if I'm interested in doing so. And I think one of the representative examples is that I went to Navy as a high jumper. And when I left, I was on the four by 100 meter team, right? I didn't come as a sprinter, but I wanted to really work on my speed for other events. And so having experiences like that in those formative years where I could do things that I might not have thought that I could do were very helpful in setting me up for the next phase, which was my career. I ended up service selecting pilot, and that was not the plan. When I left to go to Navy, what I had told everyone was that I was going to be a Navy SEAL because I thought Navy SEALs are badass. And quite frankly, I feel like I was kind of sort of a nerdy non-badass in high school. So this was like my attempt to be something that I didn't feel like I was. And I'm still not a badass, but uh, you know, you can perpetually work on it. So I went in with this idea that I wanted to be a SEAL. And then I faced the brutal facts of reality that number one, I love to work out, but I like to work out on my own terms and not with SEAL style PT. Number two, I'm not a great swimmer. And I made an effort and just still was not a great swimmer. And so you end up kind of being a little disoriented, like, hey, you know, I I came here and I had this idea of what I was going to be and what I was going to achieve. And I ended up deciding that I wanted to be a naval flight officer because I liked the strategy and the tactics that went behind it. And I spoke to my guidance counselor, who was a naval flight officer, and he said, he said, look, you know, I mean, they just approved the class before you for getting PRK. So, you know, because I didn't have perfect vision so that you could get the corrective surgery to become a pilot. And he said, I love, don't get me wrong, I love my career as a naval flight officer, but if I had had the opportunity to be a pilot, I just thought it was 
really interesting and really cool. And, and there was times when I looked at that community and wished that I had had the opportunity to do that. So I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying, take that into consideration. And so I ended up deciding to be a pilot and I'm making fun of myself because I've always had motion sickness issues. I knowingly selected pilot and went into flight school, knew, knowing that it was going to be a struggle. And it was a struggle. I had you know massive issues in the early phases But what was interesting, and this was kind of like the second phase and sort of the career element, what was interesting is that when you've committed to doing something because of the personal pressure that you put on yourself, because of the peer and the societal pressure and this feeling of like, you have to do that and this is the expectation and you have the support of a community of friends that you're going through flight school with that are doing it, they're getting it done, they're figuring it out. It's so powerful to see the things that you are afraid you don't think you can do and be successful in them. And so I I went through, they call it spin and puke, where you go through six weeks of spinning around in a chair to try to adapt uh, your capacity for motion sickness. They had put me on some temporary medicines to help me get over it. And it was never easy, but I got through it. And I got through it to the point where by the time I got to my operational squadron, the challenges associated with qualifying and growing and leading led to me actually leaving my junior officer squadron as the number one early promote because I had worked so hard to do the best I could to get the instructor pilot qualification, all from someone that had no business being a pilot in the first place. And now it's one of those sorts of experiences where I think as it lends to the next phase entrepreneurship, it's so helpful to be able to go through the trials and tribulations and to build up the grit, to build up the management of the stress and the anxiety and to be able to buckle down and really push through when you're not sure if you're going to be able to, right? But you got to try. When someone says they're an aviator in the army, it's very easy. You're Black Hawk, Apache, maybe Chinook. You were a pilot in the Navy. There are several airframes, but what type of pilot were you? So I flew P3s, which again, I always say P3 for those who may or may not be familiar, it was sort of a Cold War era anti-submarine warfare platform that was modeled off of like the original Lockheed Electra airframe. So if you're looking for a visualization, it's about the size of a C-130. Basically, it uses the same engines. It's four-engine prop plane. And post-Cold War era, a lot of the mission sets transition from anti-submarine to uh, reconnaissance and carrier strike group support. So that was the bulk of my operational experience. But I also chose P3 due in part to the motion sickness and the fact that, again, I joined the Navy, but when I'm on boats for a long period of time, I get motion sickness. So it was a strategic decision as well to fly one of the few aircraft that actually lands on a normal runway so that I could sleep in my bed in my house at night. And I feel convicted that that was a good decision to this day. Was the decision for P3 maybe based off what happened in my memory around 2002, 2003, and what happened in China, because that was a very famous slash infamous event. Did that somewhat draw you to that airframe? I think there was a number of factors, right? They have the Navy standard score, right? So as you go through the first phase of flight school, you have to be in the top half of all recent aviators that have gone through. And similar to my Naval Academy experience, I was barely in the top half. Had I wanted to choose jets, I qualified, but I probably would have not been selected. The helicopters was into the whole thing about being on a boat. A lot of them are on cruisers and frigates. And so P3 was the remaining platform, which I feel isn't as glamorous as some of the other ones. But what I did genuinely appreciate was, to your point, 
a lot of the mission sets and sort of like this, there's obviously tactics and strategy in any community. But I, when I had done a midshipman cruise my junior year, my second class year, and I actually had an opportunity to cruise with a P3 squadron. So I saw a lot of what was going on. I learned a lot about how the anti-submarine warfare mission was going. And it was very interesting to me to kind of think through what goes into tracking down a sub or doing the recon. So that was definitely one of these things where it wasn't like a begrudging decision, like, oh, I don't want to do that. I, I had a genuine level of excitement about choosing that airframe and that mission set. There's a P3 in Moffett Field. And every now and then they let you like go in there. And I took my kids there and it feels almost like a house within that airframe, like in the back, like all that equipment and chairs and that whole setup. The question I have is, in the class of 2004 at West Point, there's a number of entrepreneurs. And I'm curious if that's the same in the Naval Academy. In my class, when I had decided to go the crossrope route, there was actually a guy in my company, Eric Rivera, who was our company commander first class year. I don't know if you've met Eric, but he's an EOD guy, just great human being, super smart. He was a systems engineer with me. And he was the only person that I knew that had made this transition to the entrepreneurial route started with one called Bullets to Bandages. So for anybody that has a 50 caliber beer bottle opener, he's sort of like, I'm not going to say he invented it, but that was like, they sort of reinvented and were the first ones that learned how to market a product. And it's, it's tough, right? Because then, you know, once it has become kind of a commodity, so there's all sorts of different brands that have the 50 caliber bottle openers. But he was a great inspiration and a resource for me to go to early on to get a lot of guidance when you know, I had, I had no resources, no connections. He was so generous in some of the connections. In fact, it was a connection that he had made early on that helped us find the sourcing coordinator for our manufacturing needs that we're with to this day. That's been an amazing partner. So Eric is certainly one to highlight, but there's been a good, I'd say, even in my class, probably, you know, half dozen to a dozen others that I know, you know, have gone out and have been successful in, in entrepreneurial routes. It bears saying, and I share this story with you, but the listeners might find it interesting. The high school that I went to when I was on the chess team, sophomore year in high school, I had an eighth grader come in that frustrated me every day, knocking over all the chess pieces. He's the only person in my whole life that I've almost gotten into a fight with, and I probably would have gotten some sort of an assault charge. And fast forward, this eighth grader ended up going to the Naval Academy, and this eighth grader ended up going to Kellogg. And he ended up, you know, working in service to school and he ended up making the introduction of me to you. And his name is J.D. Modrak. And so I know he's doing a lot of stuff in this space as well. Uh, he's a great connector. And I love that story because kind of similar to the Rod Manzo story, you just never know how relationships can manifest. And I think it's a great example of always doing your best to empathize, treat people with dignity and respect and always be open-minded to, to reconnecting, regardless of what the first impression is, right? Because you never know what might manifest. And I think I'm ultimately indebted to him in many capacities for being on this discussion today. It's so fascinating that the more I hear a Naval Academy alum talk, the more I feel that our experiences are very similar. Before we get back to that transition from active duty to crossroad, let's actually rewind back to the Naval Academy. Were there any mentors? You talked about the mentor that talked about going to pilot, but any other mentors you had at the Naval Academy? And then can you expand a bit more about your experience? I know I'm asking two questions, but can you then expand about your experience in the Navy? On the mentor side of it, there's not one specific one that comes to mind. 
it's more that I felt very supported by individuals that I liked, trusted, and respected in the various facets of my experience. So to expand on that a little bit, a vast majority of my, you know, in-company leadership, you know, when my youngsters, my second class, my squadron commanders, I had a very good experience with. And I, I think that they were really great leaders at a young age. I looked up to them and really aspired to learn from their approaches you know, to leadership and what it meant to be a good leader. And I know a lot of times people talk about you can learn from bad leaders as well. Like, I don't want to be like that. But I would say by and large, at the company level, and then certainly at the senior enlisted level, all of my senior enlisted leadership within the company, the Naval Academy was was great. Some of them I I were terrified of. I remember, you know, first class year, Master Chief, and I, I feel terrible, his name will come to me, but Master Chief was just one of these individuals that like his demeanor through the challenges and the highs and lows was so formative in me understanding how to manage stress, you know, to think through and understand that when things aren't going well, what's constructive is finding communication path and a presence that really anchors people, you know, so that would be a good example. On the track and field team, Steve Cooksey was the head coach. Coach Cantella was a USMA grad uh, and then ended up coaching at Navy. He was a former Javelin world record holder. And to have you know access to the caliber of individual that were amazing competitors, I think for a lot of us, that's why you know at the service academies, even if you didn't do uh, like a varsity sport, you still did intramurals because there's so much that can be learned from sport and athletic. And so to have these coaches who were amazing and impressive mentors. One of the things that I learned is I went in there guns a-blazing, wanting to train and coach myself. I was so driven. I was so driven in what I wanted to do that I was one of the people on the team that did two-a-days on my own. And you know the lesson that I learned? The lesson that I learned is my coach told me to stop doing that. He yelled at me. He said, stop doing that. He said, when you do that, you're conveying to us, who are the experts in training, that we don't know the right coaching mechanisms and protocols. And do you know what? They were right. And I got injured. And so, you know, I I learned these these humbling lessons thinking that I knew how to train myself and how to actualize my full potential. And that sometimes you have to defer to the experienced authorities. You can't always know it all. You can't know the best. And so I think that there was just many, many individuals at all levels that helped me to think and reflect from this place as kind of like a little bit of the cocky high schooler, you know, you, I was the first in my high school class to get accepted to college. Everybody's ready to celebrate when you get to a service academy. And, you know, I'm like the, the captain of my track and field team. Everybody thinks that they're so great. And I, I've always tried to be a humble person, but these things can get to your head. And then you go there and you learn, right? Like you, no matter how successful you are, no matter what you're doing, you have to, have to, have to keep that humility and it has to be authentic or you're just going to get smacked right down. And the same, it's, it's happened in business too, right? It always does. So it's good to learn those lessons. I'd like you to talk now about your time in the Navy and how that helped to start Crossrope. And it almost ties into that overtraining aspect you just brought up. Like I mentioned, I felt like I'd always had that entrepreneurial itch, like many people do, maybe some of you listening. It's one of those things that can't be denied. And I think that the big jump is like, A lot of people have ideas and it's really hard to take the steps, even if you don't know what they are, to to go for it and to try something else. 
especially within the reality of what you can do. Like a lot of times I think entrepreneurs are glorified for, you know, the unsung heroes taking crazy risks. And in reality, you know, most of the time it should be a calculated risk. If you are listening to this right now and you're thinking about taking some sort of a risk or doing something entrepreneurial, please calculate it uh, and have some backup plans because it can be a big mistake. But for me, it was something that couldn't be denied. And so in 2011, I was newly married. I was I was on base getting a workout in before I was going to do an evening simulator, flight simulator event. And yes, you hit the nail on the head, Tim. I just, it's never good enough. I always have to improve. I always have to do more. So I was doing a powerlifting routine for bench press to try to get my new personal record on, you know, some ungodly amount of weight that I really didn't need to be bench pressing. And I tore my pectoral muscle doing it. And what's worse about it is I tore it because... I actually hadn't taken the time to make sure that I was using the correct form. I tore it because I actually had bad form. I did this to myself. It was a little bit of a freak accident. I entered into a little bit of this despondent phase. Like, I'm so stupid. How could I do this? Why was I, you know, lifting this weight? It, It was a weight that was within my capacity, but it was like, to what end, right? And then more frustration around not maybe getting the proper coaching to make sure that I was lifting with the proper form. So I was in this very despondent state where I couldn't fly. I had to get it surgically reattached. I was sitting around feeling aimless and purposeless. And, you know, I think a little bit of the aha moment is I've always been like a skeptic by nature. And you hear these broad generalities and these trite sayings like turn lemons into lemonade and Look for the silver lining and all that crap that we've all heard a million times. And like, I, I hate that stuff. But it felt like if I were going to challenge my perspective on it, this would be an appropriate time to do so. So I like evaluated my options. I could be despondent and I could sit here and mope and feel sorry for myself and, you know, torture my poor wife of three months who's trying to take care of me and do the best and be negative or... Hey, I mean, I had these entrepreneurial ideas and these burning ideas. And if there would ever be an opportunity where, you know, in the context of my naval career, I might take a shot at something. The one thing that I do have now is time. I have a little bit more time than I would have had. I'll still, I'll be responsible in the fulfillment of my duties to the extent that I can perform them. And beyond that, for this time that I have during the recovery, I'm going to do that. So From there, over the course of about a year, within probably a week of when I had surgery, I had a notebook with some different ideas. And I've always enjoyed jumping. I've always enjoyed fitness. And it was a personal problem that I was solving for. I had experienced these weighted ropes when I was stationed overseas at Camp Lemonnier in Djibouti, jumping with them as hardcore as I possibly could. And they kept breaking. And like I said, I have an engineering background. It was a very poorly engineering design. I I don't want to throw shade at whoever designed them, but they screwed a metal screw into PVC tubing. Like when you jump with the rope, what do you think is going to happen? The screw is going to unscrew from the literally the worst product design I have come across to this day. The problem that I was solving for is I wanted a really good high performance jumping experience with a range of rope weights. And so in order to do that, if it is robust, durable, high performing, expensive to manufacture handles is their utility and and value to others around being able to clip in and clip out different weights of ropes. Like, Hey, it makes sense, right? Like how could there not be 
an interchangeable jump rope. You can interchange and change your resistance and everything else. And that was the one idea where my wife, who always gives constructive input, is like, all the other ones were kind of silly and might not have worked out. And I don't remember what they were. But that one, she's like, that actually does make sense. Like, why do they not have a jump rope with different weights? And so I did Google searches and looked around and there was some jump ropes where you might have to replace the rope or there was like a key, you know, like a, a little keychain ring that you could swap out. But there was nothing where there was the consumer facing delivery of what this multi-weight rope experience would look like. And so that was the idea for a cross-training jump rope. You know, you could cross-train with your different fitness abilities and capacities by using different weights of ropes. And so for the next year, it was going to the library, reading internet articles, trying to figure out how I could piece together inexpensive prototypes. That was a fun exercise. I ended up, when you don't know what you're looking for and you don't have the budget to get something professionally made, it seems obvious in hindsight, but it's hard to find the things that you didn't know you needed. So I needed handles with with some bearings on it that I could use in some capacity and doing Google searches. And it ended up that nunchucks were the ideal product for creating handles because I could get bolt cutters and deconstruct them. I could go to Lowe's and Home Depot and I could buy some cable and you know piece together these very rudimentary prototypes. And so throughout the course of the year, it kind of culminated in April, May of 2012, where I'd been able to get some contract help on getting a website put up. I had these sort of like very crude, but working prototypes. And I learned what I could about digital marketing and sending out some emails and things of that nature. In essence, from that point, I launched a crude product that I had not expected to launch. I thought that I was going to have a working prototype. But what was crazy about it is even though it was not professionally made, even though I was deconstructing these nunchucks in my garage, the functionality and the experience that it gave to those early adopters was good. And they liked it. This was all, you know, while I was still in the Navy. And, you know, this was in 2012, you know, from 2012 to 2016, during Crossrope, I was still active duty and making sure that I could fulfill my commitments to my department heads, to my chain of command for what I needed to do to be in integrity with the expectations that were set upon me. And and frankly, to be like a good custodian of taxpayer money. Am I doing what I need to do? Well, still carving out every possible hour and minute that I could to make sure that Crossrope could give me as much runway to be successful for when I made the transition out in 2016. How did you know that Crossrope was where you're going to spend your time? Because for entrepreneurs, it's hard to know when you've got real product market fit. In my experience, the evolution of it was not planned out from what I think a typical well-vetted entrepreneurial plan would be. So, so you know, I, I think that there are these very important if you have the knowledge, the network, and the experience to go through and test your hypothesis and map out what the stages are going to be along the way, it's a wonderful thing to do and it's a great resource. In my case, it was a little bit different because the litmus test was finding the validating milestones in small chunks along the way that were just good enough to get to the next phase. So what did that mean? It meant that when I launched and had the first month of sales in 2012, it was $3,000, right? So it was, it was not nearly enough to become viable, but it, it wasn't zero. 
And it wasn't $3,000 all from people that I knew. It was mostly from people that I didn't know. So that was enough to say, okay, you know, I can start to pulse some of my customers to see what they like about it. I can start to determine whether or not I want to invest in a couple other marketing channels. You know, and so I, I think that the product market fit piece of it really wasn't for a couple of years. It was honestly, it was very touch and go for three and four years. The reason why I was able to have it be touch and go and not validate product market fit was because I was able to do enough in the moonlighting hours to keep it moving forward while I still had the stability of the full-time Navy job. And that's not practical for all you know opportunities and for all entrepreneurs, but that was something where for those out there who are listening, if you are contemplating something, if there is a moonlight path and there is an opportunity for success that isn't at hyperspeed, it is a lesser talked about path that can work and that worked and I think paid dividends in my experience with Crossroad. Fascinating. Can you talk us through the decision when you left active duty and where you were with Crossroad at that time? When I started Crossroad, I had two years left on my commitment. I got my wings at two years and then it's an, it's an eight-year commitment. But I had one year left in my command at VP30. Uh, so VP30 is, you know, fleet replenishment squadron. So it's where you go as an instructor so that you can, you know, teach G- great experience, great people, so many good friends that I still keep in touch with. Is that San Diego? That is in Jacksonville, in Jacksonville, Florida. Like I mentioned, I had the injury while I was there and I was trying to evaluate, is there another, what should my next set of orders be? I had one year left at VP30 on my orders and I still owed another year. So I had to make a decision of what I was going to do next. And I was trying to evaluate what options were available that would allow me to continue to give Crossrope the best chance for success to continue what I had been able to start at VP30, but ideally also orders that weren't, you know, in, in quotes, career killing orders, right? There was this idea of like career killing orders because you just don't know. And it's easy to get fearful, right? It's easy to get fearful of failure. And what if this doesn't work out? And, you know, I had one kid and another kid on the way, you know, my wife and I were trying to make wise long-term decisions for our family. And so what had happened is I was trying to evaluate what the options might be is that some of the ones that felt like they would be accommodating of me continuing to be able to moonlight consistently didn't have openings, didn't have capacity or were desirable, you know, to others there that had a more likely shot of getting that set of orders. And so I did have to make this commitment while I was still at VP30 to tell the detailer, I'm going to get out and run Crossroad full time. And so that actually happened probably only six months into starting the business where I had to make that decision still knowing that I had a little bit of runway with my commitment. When I had shared that with the detailer, I ended up getting assigned as a shooter to the USS Enterprise, but the USS Enterprise was decommissioning. So it was one of these roles where had I intended to continue on with my career, it would not be a good set of orders, but it was an important billet to be filled. So it was kind of a mutually good opportunity. You know, send somebody that's going to be a competent performer to this role that needs to be filled. 
while still giving me the opportunity. Because I wanted to be open and transparent with regard to the Navy, to the leadership about what my plans were and what my desires were. I think it's so important. And that's another thing, right? Like you can only be sneaky about something for so long. And actually how VP30 ended up finding out about it is I got a placement on the front of Navy Times. Uh, so my PR firm had pitched it. And, you know, so now the cat was out of the bag of, of this whole jump rope thing that this crazy lieutenant is doing. I share that because the decision was made early, but then when I got to the USS Enterprise, the chain of command was very supportive and accommodating. I did what I needed to do to help support the inactivation process. And because of that, my plan to get out at mid-2014, I ended up staying an extra two years in that billet because the business had not grown as well and as fast as what I expected. And because I felt like in a moonlighting capacity, I was able to continue doing what I needed to do. And so I ended up getting out in 2016 to run Crossroad full-time. Given that path, it feels like in some ways you actually were able to de-risk certain aspects of the company. A lot of entrepreneurs or even I think the general audience might have this question, which is, did you ever have to do any funding? And if so, in what shape or form did that look like? I haven't had to do any funding. And I think what I appreciate is I have a tremendous level of respect for the context that's needed in each scenario to determine based on personal and professional needs when funding is or is not needed. So sometimes there's this discourse around like, you should bootstrap or you shouldn't bootstrap or you should raise now. And a lot of times that perspective is given without the full context of all of the factors. Maybe that's why you even you know have context ventures, right? I, I love the word context. And so in my case, Had I departed after a year, it's very likely that I would have needed to go out to try to find, you know, some funding to make it sustainable. And at the same time, I also feel that, interestingly enough, the business may not have been investable at that point in time. It's like this interesting paradox where, like, there's just a lot of questions around the model and the product and the positioning and the brand and where it was, where, you know, I, I don't know if that would have been highest and best use of my time to, to seek it out. You know, the funding can be very, very important. It may be very important and relevant for us at a future date. And it's something I've certainly made the effort to learn more about because I think it's so critical for founders as they are evaluating the path that they want to choose to at least be able to make calculated determinations and understand what the ramifications of those various choices are and how timing affects the choices versus feeling like there is a single template and that's the only the only way to go. And so that's been my experience and it's been a positive one having bootstrapped it. But that said, even with my team as it's grown, I've looked for ways such that if there is future funding, there's certainly more than me that stands to benefit from those opportunities or from prospective future partnerships or exit plans and things of that nature. I think it's fascinating because oftentimes a lot of entrepreneurs default into thinking they need funding. And I think funding is actually what should be your last choice. If possible, fund through what you did was fund through your customers. And it also gives you a lot more options now than if you had, say, raised a lot of money. It's fascinating. I think that this journey is something that more entrepreneurs should be aware of, that it's a possibility. Of course, like if you're trying to build a Rivian or Tesla, you can't really bootstrap shooting, you know, rockets into Mars. But fascinating. The you've been working 
on Crossroad for about a decade. And I'm curious, and I'm sure at each point, year one, year five, year 10, there are different lessons. But where you stand now, what are some lessons you have for potential entrepreneurs, whether they're Naval Academy, Coast Guard, Air Force, West Point, just service members in general? One of the first ones is that having a multifaceted personal growth plan is really, really important. So I think what I mean by that is there are certain individuals that have very formal business education. You know, they go, they they get their MBA, they go do consulting for a while. There are other individuals that they studied business before. Some individuals that kind of might learn, you know, skill specific hacking from online resources, or they're taking online courses. Some that, you know, seek out certain sort of types of mentors, some that read. So there's so many different ways to learn. And in my experience, it's an open-mindedness to ensuring that you are learning across a couple of those different facets and having intentionality around it. Because I have learned amazing and incredible things through books that MBAs don't know. I've learned amazing things from MBAs that I'm never going to learn from a coach or a mentor that isn't up on the formal academia that's very, very relevant to what's going on. And as you have this sort of like personal learning and growth plan that incorporates these various facets, it's going to change at different stages, right? So I, I don't mean like, hey, map out X hours a week and put in this and this and this. Just have a general awareness around it and make evaluations on how those facets can help you to learn the things that you can put into action now. Because where I find a lot of the greatest business and personal growth comes from is you learn something that's very relevant to what you're working on right now or to a specific challenge that you have, you know, business or personal, you put it into action. Of course, it doesn't work exactly how you think it was going to work or how somebody said that it's going to work. Then you can go back to that resource, whether it's a person or a book or, or, you know, or a worksheet and you going through the repetition and the iteration between the growth and learning resources in between the experience, it has a accelerating effect in terms of how fast you can learn and be effective. So I'd say, I'd say that's the first one. Have some sort of a plan. It's going to vary. Don't follow some set template, but be very open-minded. And for me, it's been a combination of mentors. It's been a combination of books, podcasts, executive education, all sorts of different things. And I'm so appreciative of that because if you aren't learning and growing, you're really going to struggle because it's essential within business. Real quick, before you go to your second lesson is Socrates Rosenfeld, a West Point 04 classmate, came on the podcast. And he said, uh, essence of what you just shared, which is that entrepreneurs and veterans in general should embrace uncertainty. And you can't just like, you should have a plan, but you should be able to embrace that uncertainty. And it's the, and embracing it lets you see the beautiful things in life. And then I also summarize what you just shared with, having a growth mindset and the whole notion of learning and earning, it feels like as an entrepreneur, you've been able to learn and then apply those learnings to earn. Oh yeah, for sure. I think at the end of the day, you know, fulfillment and impact are so important and it's easy to wax poetic all day long to a new entrepreneur about again, like find fulfillment, you know, find passion with what you're good at. And so I respect that like there are 
nuts and bolts that you got to learn and understand. But as, as you, you know, evolve and grow through your journey, you realize that a lot of sort of that broad overarching, softer, more abstract input does inform the way that you decide to do things. And it does oftentimes inform in a meaningful and tangible way, the results that you produce. And so to your point, like the learn and earn, we've heard that before. It's just very satisfying when you say, Hey, I have invested in this growth mentality and the validation of that is that myself and my team and the others who have supported are creating something that is valued. It is valued. And the, the evidence of that is because people are buying it and you manifest and reap rewards for that. So absolutely agree. The second business lesson is around mine and my team's internal approach to goal setting. So goal setting is one of these things that is emblazoned in us. In fact, I remember, I think it was post Navy. I did one of these like it was like you just graduated or it was like the week of graduation, kind of like these life lesson sessions. And so there was like a public speaking one and there was one on goal setting. And what resonated with me is I, I guess there was maybe you or others have heard this, but there was some sort of like Harvard study of a cohort of Harvard grads in 1975. And then they came back 25 years later and they pulled that cohort on who had set goals and had plans to execute those goals versus who had not proactively done that. And I'll probably butcher the numbers a little bit, but the essence of it was like of the 3% that had been consistent in setting and executing goals, they had 97% of the wealth of the cohort, right? So like, don't put too much stake in those numbers, but the gist of it was it parlayed this very strong impression that like, oh my gosh, I have got a goal set from here for the rest of my life if I want to be successful. And what I found is that goal setting is very challenging. Like we've sort of been conditioned to like set a goal and then do all the actions that you need to achieve it. And anybody that's done enough goal setting knows that it just doesn't always work out that way. And it doesn't mean that you didn't goal set the right way or that you're not taking the right actions. It just means that it can be useful to have some other frameworks that serve you. So one of them, you know, James Clear from Atomic Habits, if anybody's read that book, he shares a lot about the idea that it's useful to have a target, but it's more important on how you think through the steps, activities, behaviors, and habits that you believe will help you to achieve that target. So you can say, hey, I want to lose 10 pounds, but we all know just saying it isn't necessarily going to be successful. But if you say, hey, I view myself as an athlete, and as an athlete, I am going to partake in playing tennis three times a week and if I want to be good at tennis, I'm going to need to work on my strength and my conditioning. And then all of a sudden, after three months of tennis, you've lost 10 pounds because you have been committed to the behaviors that serve your identity. So as we think through that in goal setting, what we've done organizationally is we've said, hey, here's a goal that we're shooting, a revenue number, a traffic number, a metric. Here are all the actions that we believe and we hypothesize are going to deliver the goal. But then we're going to say, success is the execution of those actions within our control and then landing at that goal plus or minus X amount, right? And then if we exceed that, we now have a data point to help us to better scope out what reasonable targets are. If we're below that, what is the number that we're below where we can then have an after action discussion, which we have anyway, to say, did we miss on the execution? Did we miss on the premise? 
or can we come up with a very cogent case of why the reason why we didn't hit it was because the factors were just beyond our control. And so main takeaway there, goal setting, it's not that easy. It takes a lot of pressure. And if for you and your team, it's not just about hitting the number, hitting the number, hitting the number, and there's more context to ranges and the habits and the actions that you think are going to deliver that, it can create a really healthy and bot in environment around what it means to try to set constructive and valuable goals personally and professionally. I hit on two. I feel like I got, I, I feel like I got my four in in those two minutes of time. I could go on, but I think those are two good ones and I'll defer back to you, Tim. I want to be thoughtful of our time and I want to get to, and I feel like I'm a vessel for the audience. So the audience would want to ask this. Where is Crossrope today and where do you think Crossrope will be now that you've done the last 10 years? Where might it be the next 10 years? Well, today, if I could define Crossrope, I'd say we deliver the best jump rope fitness experience in the world. And we define jump rope fitness experience from when you take our products out of the box, when you download our app, you're ready to jump. It feels great. It's high quality. And it inspires you to feel that this could be the activity that serves you in whatever your goals are, whether they're better health and wellness, whether it's losing weight, whether it's becoming more athletic, or whether or not it's just doing some sort of movement that feels like it's not mundane and repetitive. Team-wise, we're at about 30. We've actually contracted a little bit from 2020, so it's always good from that you know humility discussion that I mentioned to realize that there are factors beyond your control that can spur growth and contraction. And for us, with the advent of interest in home fitness, 2020 was a peak year for us. But we still, if you look at our growth over the course of the past 10 years, we're still, you know, when you dampen it out, we're still on a positive growth trajectory working on new products and better experiences than ever. In 10 years from now, if I can, you know, I think articulate what a win would be for us is at a minimum, we'd love to add a million new jumpers a year. We'd like to have the jump rope fitness experience talkable and transformative enough so that it is category expanding. Uh, So a lot of times you'll hear about people talk about what is the total market opportunity, the total addressable market. We want to have a share of that. And We feel like as a leader in the position, we have a great share of the existing jump rope market. That's not the exciting opportunity anymore. The exciting opportunity is a share of the portable fitness market and the home fitness market and the accessory market where we're viewed as, you know, the preeminent quality products and experience from top to bottom that people would jump with. And so, you know, we're we're committed to that over the next 10 years and growing and building the team. Who knows how many? I mean, you know, maybe we have 100 or 200 employees. Maybe we've found a strategic partner that can help to serve to actualize the brand and get us to, you know, new channels and influencers and others that might be interested in what we're doing. But, you know, the big, hairy, audacious goal is really around this idea of having Crossrope become a household name in jump rope fitness. I remember in elementary school, maybe it was my era at Oni, but we're the same age. Jump rope was a big thing. Like suddenly, like every elementary school, they they introduced that during physical education. And I still have my kids jump rope on cross ropes. And it's a fantastic product. And I think that it's really impressive with what you've built. A lot of entrepreneurs, and I would say, I'll use the word layman, think that the headcount is actually what matters. But I don't think it's headcount. I think it's about 
to your point, your impact, and then profitability. And so it's amazing to hear your journey. Would you say that a lot of Naval Academy alums support Crossrope? And how well are you known in that community? I would say probably there's not too many West Pointers familiar with the brand. It's tough to peg a number. You know, I've kept in touch with a good number of my classmates and I've taken opportunities, especially I'm in the Raleigh-Durham area. So they have a service academy for all service academies meetup group. And so there's been some good connections there. I'm not sure if there's a way to quantify it, but I will say I appreciated that many of my classmates that have gotten into the entrepreneurial space have been supremely helpful and supportive. I've always looked to reciprocate as well. And, you know, a lot of times they, they talk about the service academies as kind of like the, you know, the, the fraternity afterwards, where it's very easy to have the past shared, shared experiences that allow you to jump right in and connect and just try to be good, decent human beings, try to make a positive impact in the world, right? You know, this is not a sponsored read or a mid-roll or post-roll but I will personally vouch for Crossrope. It's a great set of equipment. The mats are great. The ropes are great. Dave, this was awesome having you on the podcast. I'm almost afraid that we should do more Naval Academy folks given this podcast and would definitely ask that you come back one of these days and see where Crossrope and you are. I'm sure you still got big BHAGs, big goals. Any last remarks before we close this session over? Well, first of all, thanks again for having me on. I always enjoy talking about this. And I will say that if the feedback is terrible, I'm happy to have helped you determine that you don't want any more Naval Academy people on the show. If the feedback is decent, then I'm honored to have been the first that you you know, thought to invite on, especially given the crazy impressive list of individuals that you've had. So beyond that, I do mean it earnestly. If there's anybody that's listening that is interested in reaching out, LinkedIn is super easy and a great place or Dave at crossrope.com. I've found that the entrepreneurial community is has a very pay it forward mindset. The Surface Academy entrepreneurial community, like, you know, supercharges that force multiplier. And Tim, when we were out in San Fran, you know, had a couple discussions with you and others that just said, look, we feel that veterans in general you know, veterans and and certainly service academy entrepreneurs are underrepresented. And we have a lot of amazing experiences that we can share and things that we've learned. And so I think this podcast is a real service for helping to inspire and connect in any way that I can help and be a part of that. I am, you know, genuinely more than happy to. Dave, I've learned so much from you previous to this podcast, on this podcast. Can't thank you enough. We're definitely going to have more Naval Academy alums Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks. You too, Tim. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.